I got a message uh, from a friend of mine that uh, played, we played ball together in college. I was pleased uh, our freshman year, my freshman year, his sophomore year, to see him come to the Lord. He later surrendered to the ministry, went to Southwestern Seminary, and now serves the Lord in Huntsville. He sent me a message yesterday. It's very simple, just like him. Straightforward, to the point. It's the beginning of 2014. Don't mess it up. <laughs> Preach the gospel. <clears throat> and that's, that's what I had planned to do, and I was appreciative of that reminder from him. Because so often we mess it up. And on any Sunday, on any day, it is right to preach the gospel. First to ourselves, then to our families, to our neighbors, our co-workers, and to strangers which we might come into contact with and God open the door for the sharing or the witnessing. It's right to preach the gospel at all times, in all places, for one purpose. That His name might be named among the nations. And He might be glorified and magnified as the great King of kings and Lord of lords. We should witness to His coming. We should witness to the fact that He came. And we should witness to His magnitude and His merciful goodness towards us. Christianity, a call to die so we will live. It's the title of the sermon, Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. January is a very different month around here. We have finished our walk through the first book of the Psalter. We have gone through Advent, and now we enter into a month of very um, topositional sermons. That's topical exposition. Today's the Gospel. Next week is Race, Rela Race Relations Sunday, where we will emphasize the, emphasize the unity that we have across all bonds, all boundaries. We are bonded together in Christ. Um, and then the 19th, we will have Sanctity of Life Sunday, where we will celebrate the, the goodness and the gift of life. And uh, we'll have a special guest come in that day and share testimony from Save a Life, which is a ministry here locally that helps young women make good decisions in tough situations to spare life. Um, and then the 26th, we have a special opportunity to have Rod Connor, one of our missionaries on the field, come in and preach and, uh, and he will also share at a meal about the ministry that's going on through your generosity. The gospel's going forward to all the nations, okay? And then I'm not sure about the first Sunday of February, but the second Sunday of February will be Vision Sunday. And then we'll get into Proverbs for eight sermons, and then we'll be in Hebrews. So uh, that's kind of where we're headed. Today is about specifically about the gospel. And I want to start out by um, bringing a quote to you. It's, it's a long quote. I know that long quotes um, are difficult sometimes for us to listen and stay tuned in. I want to uh, read this quote because it's so important to the foundation of this sermon. John Piper, in his newly released book, Risk is Right, Risk is Right, in his first chapter, The Ultimate Meaning of Life, says this, Almost everything I have to say is summed up in Paul's passionate words to the church in Philippi. Philippians 1, 20-21 says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, 
And to die is gain. If you asked Paul to tell you what the ultimate aim of life is, his life or any life that is unwasted, I think this is what he would have said. Honoring Christ, magnifying Christ, making much of Christ. That was the meaning of Paul's life. It, it should be the meaning of ours. And Paul prays it will be the meaning of his death as well. We live and we die to make much of Christ. The universe was created for this, making much of Christ. Paul says as much in Colossians 1.16, All things were created through Him and for Him. For Him, that is, for His glory, for His admiration, esteem, wonder, praise, trust, obedience, allegiance, worship. This meaning of life is global. It embraces all the peoples of the world. Why did Paul, why did God call Paul and make him and thousands after him an emissary of the gospel to the nations? Paul answers in Romans 1.5, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. For the sake of Jesus' name. After Jesus had died and made an atonement for sins, God raised Him from the dead and highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, Philippians 2.9 says. The reason God did this was the universal acclaim of Jesus Christ. He raised Him so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Philippians 2.10. John Stott warns against the treasonous imperialism of using world missions as a cloak for pursuing honor for our own nation, our own church, our own organization, our own selves. Then he says, stunningly, only one imperialism is Christian. However, and that is concern for His imperial majesty Jesus Christ and for the glory of His empire or kingdom. This is what we live for and die for, for to make much of Jesus Christ and His glorious, universe-encompassing kingdom. The heart cry of our lives, young and old, men and women, rich and poor, is the glory of Jesus Christ so that we'll uh, that will full, with full courage now as always Christ may be honored in our bodies whether by life or death there are a thousand ways to magnify Jesus Christ in life and death none should be scorned all are important but none makes the worth of Christ shine more brightly than sacrificial love for the people for other people in the name of Jesus. If Christ is so valuable, that hope of His immediate and eternal fellowship after death frees us from the self-serving fear of dying and enables us to lay down our lives for the good of others, such love magnifies the glory of Christ like nothing else in the world. Is it true that our life purpose daily is to magnify the name of Jesus Christ in all the nations. Is it true? Is it true for me? Is it true for you? Is it true for your family? Is it true for Grace Fellowship? Is it true for evangelical churches in the West? Is it true that our lives' existence is summed up with the statement, to God be the glory, great things He has done? That's a haunting question. For somebody like me that lives in the lap of luxury.
I woke up this morning with the power of an alarm clock from a phone that costs more than most of the world lives on for months at a time. I walked a few feet and used a western style toilet and got in a hot water shower and walked a few more feet after being dressed and opened a cupboard filled with food. When we go to the grocery store at the Weather's Home, we buy for two weeks, sometimes more. And if we really got down to the bare bones of it, we could eat for months and not go back to the store. And I got in a car that costs more than most people in this world will ever touch in their lives. And came to a warm building again. And I stand in a comfortable place to preach a message that calls me to die. It is a dangerous place to live in this western comfortable existence and talk about a radical, life-changing, life-demanding gospel. It's dangerous. This is not the call of God on the life of a few missionaries. The gospel call is a call to die so that we will live. The gospel call is a call on you and a call on me and a call on every global Christian in the world to die. My fear is that people like me are one of the biggest hindrances to the going forth of the gospel. One of the things that God has humbled me with over the last two weeks as I've studied for this sermon is I may very well be the biggest obstacle to the world being reached. The fact is, it's more comfortable to hide the truth because we're afraid of the consequences of the full truth. God puts resources in your hands from all directions. My wife and I were Christmas shopping. We won't get started on that. What America spends on Christmas. And we were in the Christian bookstore and she found a $5 book. You know why they have $5 books, right? Because nobody will buy it. It's a flop. It's a failure. Nobody wants it. You know why nobody wants this book? Because this book, entitled The Insanity of God, challenges people like me to realize that there are people dying every day for the gospel I proclaim freely. And I haven't thought of them this week. I haven't thought of them this month. The writer of the book Nick uh, Ripkin is his pseudonym. He changed his name because he works in a Muslim country. He wants to protect his family and his co-workers. Listen to what he says. He, after serving the Lord for six years in Somaliland in the heat of the Civil War, he was the first Westerner to enter Somaliland from 1988 to 1990. The first one to actually put a boot on the ground. He went by himself. He caught a ride from a Red Cross plane that would dive in, drop off a few supplies, and lift off. They never even left the plane. 
He got out. The Red Cross guy said, I hope you understand something. I have no way to know when I will come again. I don't know if you'll be alive or dead when I get here. You can't leave. If you lead off this plane, you're on your own. He got off the plane. Six years later, after feeding 50,000 people a day through an international organization that he, God moved him to have compassion on the people and feed them. And sharing the gospel, he left the country no better than he found it. As he flew out, looked over the desertous landscape of Somaliland, his faith was rocked because he said, how is faith to survive in a culture like this where it's persecution every day as a norm? It inspired him to ask permission from the mission board to travel the world over and talk to people in every culture under extreme persecution or those who had lived through persecution. One of the countries he visited was Russia. Another was the Ukraine. Right after the fall of the Soviet Union, many stories began to fall, flood out of Russia and the Ukraine of the suffering of the people for 80 years under communist oppression. He was there in 96 in the Ukraine and he was talking to groups of Christians and this is what he said. Often in interviews... I would ask, or blurt out during their story, how did you or your family or your church or your people learn to live like this? How did you learn to live like that and die like that? One of the first men I said that to answered me by telling me this. Listen to this, parents. Listen to this, young people. This Ukrainian Christian said, I remember the day like it was yesterday, Nick. My father put his arms around me and my sister and my brother and he guided us into the kitchen and we all sat down around a table and we began to talk. My mom was crying so I knew things were not good. Papa didn't look at her because he was talking directly to the children, to us. He said, children, you know that I'm a pastor of our church. That's what God's called me to do, to tell others about him. I have learned that the communist authorities will come tomorrow and arrest me. They will put me in prison because they want me to stop preaching about Jesus. But I cannot stop doing that because I must obey God. And I will miss you very much. But I will trust God to watch over you while I'm gone. He hugged each one of us and then he said, All around this part of our country... The authorities are rounding up followers of Jesus and demanding that they deny their faith. Sometimes when they refuse, the authorities line up whole families and hang them by the neck until they are dead. I don't want that to happen to our family. So I'm praying that once they put me in prison, they'll leave you and your mother alone. However, and here he paused and made eye contact with us, the children. If I'm in prison, and I hear that my wife and my children have been hung to death rather than deny Jesus. I will be the most proud man in that prison. When he finished the story, I was stunned. I had never heard that kind of thing in my church growing up. I had never encountered that in my pilgrimage. I was sure that I had never been told that a father should value his faith over his family. Almost immediately though, I caught myself and I thought of some biblical examples of that very thing. I guess that's part of our story, I silently concluded. But it's not part of the story that we kept, it is part of the story that we keep very hidden. 
he continued to ask those kinds of questions, and uh, he got more response. Responses, a response like this. I remember when my parents gathered our family together and my father said, Children all over the district, the communist authorities are slowly starving to death believers who refuse to deny their faith. If our family has to starve for Jesus, then let us do so with joy. He asked the question, I asked the same question. What do you do with this? How do you explain this kind of faith in our Western culture? I could go on and on. The book is filled with this. I encourage you to buy the book. Pay the $5. Read the whole thing. As his time came to an end, he asked this of a collected Christians with an old pastor in the room. I just don't understand why you haven't collected these stories and written a book telling us all around the world what you've gone through. Your stories are amazing. These are inspiring testimonies. I've never heard anything like them. Listen to this. An older pastor reached out and took my shoulder. He clamped his other hand tightly onto my arm. He looked me right in the eye and he said, Son, when did you stop reading your Bible? All of our stories are in the Bible. God has already written them down. Why would we bother writing books so to tell a story which God has already told the story? If you would just read the Bible, you would see that our stories are there. He pushed and and he paused, he pushed me away, he paused, and he looked at me again, and he said, when did you stop reading your Bible? Without waiting for me to respond, he turned and walked away. There was no friendly smile. No encouraging pat on the back. And no kiss on the cheek. His convicting question still echoes. In my mind. I really am amazed myself at these kinds of stories. This week I was speaking with one of our missionaries to Uganda and South Sudan. In our conversation, I was telling him what he said, What are you going to preach on? I told him what I was going to preach on. He's headed back now to Uganda, and he's going to fly into South Sudan. You been keeping up with the news? Two weeks ago, in southern Sudan, a brand new nation, the newest nation in the world, it's a Christian nation. The Muslims are slaughtering Christians. Our missionaries headed right into it. They found a mass grave, 34 Christian bodies buried. Villages burned, children enslaved, women raped. Our missionaries headed right into the teeth of it. And I said, without thinking, you thought about delaying your trip? I was immediately convicted. What am I talking about? And before I could apologize, he said to me, Pastor Jeffries, you know Pastor Jeffries? He spoke in our pulpit. Pastor Jeffries doesn't get to put off preaching the gospel 
so I'm not going to put off going and supporting him. Church, when you give to Christ through Grace Fellowship, you support men like Jeffries who are dying on the front lines of Christianity. And you support Trip Skipper who flies across 8,000 miles from here and walks into their homes and prays with them and trains them so they might be better pastors. I was immediately convicted because it exposed what this book exposed, what Risk is Right has exposed, and what the Word of God has exposed in my own heart, and that is the desire to keep this life, to keep this life, this life at almost all costs. Almost all costs. And then I read this. In Revelation, I'm still, I'm still building a case here. We're going to get to Mark 8. I haven't forgotten. You don't have to turn to these passages. Just listen to me. I know Aaron's about to teach through this, so I'm just going to set it up. I'm going to tee it up for him. Jesus Christ left a last testimony and will and testament to the church. And John was privileged to write it down. Listen to what Jesus said to the churches in Asia Minor and through them to us. Listen to what he said. To Ephesus in 2 verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the church at Smyrna, in verse 11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To one who conquers, there will be no hurt in the second death. To the church at Pergamum, he says in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church at Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when, with, when an earthen pot is broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church at Sardis, Jesus Christ, in verse 5, chapter 3 says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father. And before his angels, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church at Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the church at Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 21, he says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also 
conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice in that last message He says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to sit on the throne with me because, is another way we could say it, what? Why did Jesus get to sit on His Father's throne? Because He conquered. It puts conquering in a whole new context, doesn't it? You hear the word conquer, I hear the word conquer, we think about earthly success. Conquerors reign through life. And Jesus says, if you're going to conquer, it'll be through death. I died, and you will die. I sit on the throne, if you want to sit on the throne with me, you will die. That's what Jesus is saying in Romans 8, verse 37. We have a message from the Apostle Paul who says to us this very same thing. Romans 8, verse 37, after the eight, uh, the eight sayings, in a way, of, of what can separate us from the love of God. He then says in verse 37, No, in all these things, what things? Up above. What things? Persecution, starvation, death, distress nakedness, danger, sword, all these things, we are more than conquerors. There's that word. Through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, no power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So those who are in faith, in Christ, cannot be taken away from Christ because they will conquer death, starvation, persecution, nakedness, toil. They'll, per they'll conquer all those things. And when Jesus took the message of conquering, He took it to all the churches. Not just to a select few. Hebrews 11, verse 32 through 40. I just want to make sure you know this isn't just contained in one little place, in one little pocket. As that Ukrainian pastor said, when did you stop reading your Bible? When he, I read that, I stopped started looking. I just shut the book, tears flowing, and opened the Bible, started reading, and all these were easy to find. They're easy to find, and they're easy to ignore because they're so hard, and they're so confrontational. Hebrews 11, verse 32 after the hall of faith that we so much love to read, what does the writer of Hebrews say and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered. There's a theme in the New Testament about conquering, don't you think? How did they conquer? What did they conquer? They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains 
and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. For since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Conquering is synonymous with suffering in the Bible. When it comes to Christian faith, conquering is suffering. And it includes even physical death. We like to sing little ditties about being conquerors and being in the Lord's army as long as we're in vacation Bible school with the air conditioning cut on. When the Bible talks about conquering in the Lord's army, it talks about going out as sheep among wolves. Think about the insanity of that analogy. Jesus said to his men while he's sending them out, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. What kind of shepherd does that? Acts 1 verse 6 through 8. If we keep on going on our theme here, we're we, we, easy to take these and say, well, Carlton, I'm not the prophets of the Old Testament, and I'm not David, and I'm not Samuel. And By the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm not the Apostle Paul, and I'm certainly not Jesus. Okay? Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed of his own authority. But you will receive power. We love that. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my, what is that word there? Witnesses. The root word in the Greek for witnesses is martyreo. That's the word. You might recognize it as martyr. For you will be my martyrs. Jesus isn't talking to Paul. and He's not talking just to Peter. He's talking to the churches that will conquer. How will you conquer? You will be my martyrs. In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria... To the ends of the earth. And so we come to the basis. I believe the basis of all that I have said so far. Is in our text. And that's what I want to preach to you. This morning. All of that other, all that I've said. Is in preparation to say what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say. Is a very shocking. And it rocks me to the core. And I'm certain it will you too. And some of you will leave mad today. It's okay. It's all right. This is not popular in our culture. This is not normal. Mark 8, verse 31. And Jesus says, And he began to teach them, Mark says, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said to this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him, 
with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. First of all, in this passage, we see that our faith rests on the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. If you look at verses 31 through 33, Mark gives us details that Jesus, this is the first of four predictions in the Gospel of Mark alone, that Jesus predicted his death. And it starts in Mark 8, and then it's in Mark 9, Mark 10 twice. He says it in increasing uh, intensity as he moves towards the cross. He wants them to know this. Your faith rests on my death, my sacrifice. The rock of your faith, the cornerstone of your faith must die so that you may live. That's the message. Jesus would suffer rejection, physical torture in verse 31, first part. And he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Not just physical things, many things. What would he suffer? He would suffer rejection by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. That's the first thing that we see is that Jesus had to suffer. Jesus suffered rejection, emotional, spiritual rejection by the people. And he suffered physical sufferings. The whip, the beatings, he suffered. Secondly, in this first section, we see that Jesus would willingly die at the hands of mur murderers. I almost wrote it like this, but then I backed off. Jesus would commit suicide at the hands of murderers. I, I almost put it that way because it's, it's, it's really, in some ways, right. What do we call it when a person purposes to die? When they say, I'm going to kill myself. It's suicide, right? And in Acts, we find out that this suicide was the plan of God. Jesus Christ would die willingly for us, the church, and for His Father's name at the hands of sinful, murderous men. Jesus didn't walk blindly into the Garden of Gethsemane and wake up from a prayer and say, uh-oh, what's going on? And when they got there and Judas kissed him, it wasn't like he said, the shock and horror. They're going to hurt me and kill me. No. He's saying in Mark 8, they're gonna suffer, I'm going to suffer at their hands, they're going to reject me, and I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. Who took his life? No one. He willingly laid down his life. Who took his life? Murderers like you and me. Third, in this first part, we see that Jesus would rise from the dead. The last part of the story is not death, but resurrection. 31, verse C. And be killed, and after three days rise again. Not a general, well, one day God will see 
to raise me from the dead. Praise Jesus. Not even the hope that we have of resurrection where we say, one day, I'm not sure when it is, Jesus is coming, but I believe with all confidence in every, every particle of my being that he's coming and I'll be raised from the dead. Not even that. Look what he said specifically. Three days. Jesus is giving them the blueprint to disprove his sonship. We could say, if he doesn't suffer, if he doesn't face rejection, if he's not hung on a cross and then not raised from the dead on the third day, he's a liar. He's not the Son of God. He's not the promised Messiah. He gave them the blueprint to reject him, to deny him. The problem is, all of it was true. He lived, he suffered rejection and physically, he died and he was raised from the dead. Fourthly, in this first section, we see that Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection were God's plan for his glory and our good. 33 through 34. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Why? Because Peter had pulled him aside and rebuked him. No, Lord, you've misunderstood. You're the king. You're going to get David's throne. You're going to sit up there and rule over the Romans and these filthy Gentiles and the Jews are going to be kings on the earth. That's what's going to happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Why did he say, get behind me, Satan? Why was he so offended by Peter's rebuke? Because of Mark 10, take your Bible and turn one page over, in my book anyway, Mark 10, verse 45. Again, he has said that he would die in verses 32 through 34. And then in verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How would he serve? And give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. Peter's rebuke was out of place and out of hand because Jesus didn't come the first time to sit on the throne. He came the first time to hang on a cross and be raised from the dead so that others might live and be set free from death and sin and so that his Father might be glorified. These are the reasons for his death. So we see, first of all, that our faith is founded on the death of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in this passage, we see that therefore we should never be ashamed of our Savior. Now, I'm going to do something this morning. I want you to look at the passage with me. In verse 34, Jesus turns to the crowd and to the disciples, and he makes some very bold statements. Beginning in verse 35, every statement begins with four. At least it does in the ESV, and, and it is correct according to my understanding of the Greek. Every one of these verses, 35 begins with 4, 36, 4, verse 37, 4, verse 38, 4. All of those 4s are best understood, and 4 is often misunderstood in our culture, but the word 4, F-O-R, means because. Because, 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 because. So what we have after verse 34 is in beginning in verse 35 through 38 are reasons or outflows of the gospel. Okay? That's what they are. Therefores. We get fours, it can also be therefore. All right? So I want to go backwards. I want to come down to verse 38. Therefore, I change the four to therefore. Therefore, we should never be ashamed of our Savior. Verse 38. 
Let me just say it this way. If we are ashamed of Jesus and His gospel in this generation, then He will be ashamed of us at His second coming. This is not talking about one individual instance where you were sitting and someone put you in a position to share the gospel and you were scared to do it so you didn't. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the heart position. If your heart's position is, I'm ashamed of Jesus, I can't humble myself to be a part of something like Christianity because it's too menial. It calls for too much sacrifice. I can't do that. I can't stomach it. If that's you... He won't stomach you at the second coming. That's as plain as I know to put it. Therefore, in verse 38, or for whoever is ashamed of me. The, the picture is of one whose head is down and covered so that, out of embarrassment. Is that where your heart is? Let me tell you, if that's where your heart is, if you're afraid to identify with Jesus Christ from the heart, He will not accept you at His second coming. He will reject you. He will be ashamed of you. Get this. What Jesus is saying is if you go through this life like this about Christianity, oh, I hope nobody realizes I'm a Christian. It's going to cost me a lot. I better hide it. I need to be careful what I say. I need to be kind. Everybody needs to love me. If that's your attitude, when you come to the throne of Jesus at his second coming, he will do this. He will cover his face. He will turn the light of His glory from you. He will say, depart from me for I never knew you. He will say, go to my left hand, you worker of iniquity. He will put you with the goats. He will ban you to eternal hell. You will sit outside the walls of the kingdom of God and gnash your teeth for eternity. Because our faith is founded on one who willingly, sacrificially died, we cannot stand to be ashamed of our Savior. Not in our speech. Not in our actions. Not in our sacrifices. Not in our giving. Not in the use of our talents. Not in our employment. Not in where we choose to live. Not in where we choose to go. We can't be ashamed. That's what Jesus says. Or He's ashamed of us. If we are identified with Jesus, this is implicit. If we are identified with Jesus by faith, then when He comes, He will identify with us. The opposite is the converse of this statement is true. If you're ashamed, then He's ashamed. But if you boldly identify with Him. Again, we all fail, don't we? All of us, some of us have people in our lives that we've tried to share the gospel with a hundred times and every time we chicken out and we are scared to death. I do it, you do it, let's be honest. But the position of my heart is I want to be found in Christ. I want to be in Him. And I seek that through His grace every day by His Spirit to be empowered, to be a witness, a martyr in this culture. As difficult as that is, it's what I want to be. And because of that, it's the evidence of His being in me When I come before his throne at the second coming, he won't do this. He'll do this. He won't say, depart from me. He will say, come to me and find your rest. He will say to me in all embracing acceptance, I'm yours and you are mine. He will embrace and say, well 
done, my good and faithful servant. So the second thing we see in this passage, or in verse 38, the, first, the thing we see is that if we are ashamed of our Savior, He's ashamed of us. If we identify with Him, He identifies with us. Therefore, we shall never be ashamed of the Savior. Third thing we see in this passage, therefore we will never trade our soul even for the whole world. I combine verses 36 and 37, two more therefores or becauses or fours. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Gospel witnesses trade the world for our souls. That's what we do. That's not what missionaries do. That's not what people in southern Sudan do. That's not what Jim Elliot did only. There's no special class of Christians called martyrs. All Christians are martyrs. That's the call of the gospel. And that being the case... What we're saying is we've traded the whole world in so we can have our soul. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13 verses 44 through 46 in the kingdom parable section, he says, when a man finds a treasure, he sells all that he has, buys the field, and that way he can have the treasure which is buried in it. A man found a pearl of great price. And what did he do? He sold everything he had to have the pearl of great price. That's the call of the gospel. That we die to self every day. Gospel witnesses live daily with a focus on eternal, not temporal life. The focus of a gospel life is eternal things, not temporal things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives us this in 16 through 18. For we know that these momentary light afflictions are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory which they are laying up for us. These sufferings are laying up for us eternal glory. Jonathan Edwards in his great writing on this passage said, many of you know it, I don't want to go through the whole thing, but you need it. I need it every day. He said everyone who enters glory will have a capacity to enjoy eternity. Everyone will enjoy eternity to full capacity. The problem is some of us will have very little capacity. Because what we've done in this life is we've tried to hang on to as much as we can in this life of pleasure rather than having Christ fully embracing Him. And we'll be saved and we'll enter the kingdom like a thimble. And we'll be cast in the ocean of God's love. How much of the ocean can a thimble hold? A thimble's worth. But if we trade in every pleasure and every longing for this world, for the longing and treasure of Christ, we will be expanded in capacity to great heights so that we're able to comprehend the love and the depth of His love for us in all of eternity. What a beautiful saying. Gospel people's faith is founded on a sacrificial Savior who gave His life. So they're not ashamed of Him and they trade everything else to have Him. That's what our passage is saying. It's what Jesus says. That's the foundation for all those passages I read earlier. That's the foundation for the Ukrainian pastor's faith in the face of oppression and death. The gospel is worth it. 
Third under this section, gospel witnesses finish well. Verse 36 and 37 bring up the point in verse 37. What can a man give in return for his soul? It's a statement. There's nothing you can give in return for your soul. So it requires that you finish. Paul in Philippians 3, verse 12 through 16 says, I'm straining towards the goal of the high calling. He's finishing well. Peter made the great confession. Right? Later, Jesus looked at John 6 when everybody's dispersing and leaving him because the sayings are too hard. Jesus looks at Peter and the other disciples and said, will you leave me also? And what does Peter say? Where will we go? For we have found that you have the words of eternal life. What does that statement mean? Exactly what our passage says. Everything's been traded in. There's nowhere else to go. Is that the statement of your life? That's the statement of a gospel life. We like to call it radical and all these. No, it's just normal Christianity. He, he, he is driving home the point, Peter is, in that statement, that confession is, we don't, we, we've traded lives, businesses, homes, wives, children, success, love, a religion, a way of life. We've traded it in, Jesus, because you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? We've burned the boats. We're here to stay. I want to encourage the older ones among us. I'm not to your stage of life, but I want to give you what I think is biblical wisdom. Finish the race. The retirement plague of our nation has convinced us the last 30 years of our life belong to us. I just want to say, and you younger than me, when I get to their stage, you tell me, don't stop. Don't quit. The last 30 years belong to Jesus. Retire, please, from your daily work. But pick up the work of the kingdom in a more exaggerated way in that stage of life and finish. Don't cross the line falling down. Cross the line straining forward. The Apostle Paul did. Let's do it by the grace of God. Finally, we see in this passage... That if we are in the gospel of Christ, then we have died the death of the cross. What makes all of this capable, possible to people like us is what I'm about to say. Verse 34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What does that mean, Jesus? It means take up your cross and follow me. All Christians are martyrs. Every Christian is a martyr. I read Acts 1 verse 6 through 8 earlier. I won't read it again. Galatians 2.20 says the same thing. Paul says, For I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Romans 6 verses 1 through 14 say, paraphrased, you have been baptized into the death And raised like Him to new life. We died with Him. 
We've been raised with Him. And it's to a new life in this life, a sanctified life in this life, a gospel life in this life. Philippians 1, 18. I can't not read this one. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I know I say that all the time, right? But it's true. Philippians 1, verses 18 through 20, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is Paul in prison. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. There's that word. But that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means full fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the beautiful truth, Christian. You will be a martyr when you decide by faith I'm dead and Christ is living. At that moment. Not at the moment someone barges in the back door of your home with a gun and says, deny Christ or die. At the moment that by the power and grace of Jesus Christ and the work of the gospel in your heart, you fully surrender and say, I'm dead. Christ lives. You are a martyr. Those people cannot stop preaching the gospel because that's their life. All Christians are empowered to die daily. Because we have a Savior who died once for all. If we are in the gospel of Christ, then we have died the death of the cross. And the death of the cross is what empowers us to die daily. We're not kamikazes for Jesus. It's not our faith to strap bombs on and go into buildings and kill others. No, Christianity is the only religion in the world. The only good and right religion in the world. Why? Because our leader died rather than kill others. And then he called every one of his soldiers not to bear the sword of this world. When Peter drew the sword of this world and hacked off an ear, Jesus rebuked him. When he was questioned about his followers, he said, If, my fo- if it was my design to take over the kingdom of Rome, I'd do it. My followers would take up arms and we'd wipe you off the planet. But that's not my desire. That's not the plan. The followers of our great Savior die. Personally die. In the face of a radical world that wants to kill our faith, we willingly, like sheep, go into the mouths of wolves and die. How does that happen? By the power of the gospel. Because our Savior has already preceded us. In this life. Let me just simply say this. There are many applications to this sermon. One of them I will give you. I have them in my hand. So you can come see me. This is an invitation. From our missionary Rod Connor. And David Sitton. To go to an open house. In Los Fresnos, Texas. 
the first weekend in February. The open house is for anyone that thinks they might be willing to go into the pioneer mission field of this world and train and preach the gospel and train up laborers. If you want to go, I have an invitation for you. If we run out of invitations, I promise you they'll print more. This past, uh, two, this past week at the Cross Conference, I was talking to Rod this week, at Cross Conference for college students, they gave a call at the end for people to go and die on the farm mission field, college students. Over a thousand got up and came forward. 275 college students signed an agreement to go and hear what this man's doing to train up pioneer missions who will go and most likely suffer and some will die. We live in a, I believe this, we live in a generation where people are being called out by God to go in His name to the nations. And I believe we live in a generation not much different than that of Adoniram Judson and William Carey. We live in a generation with a group of young folks that want to give their life to a cause. And I believe the cause He's calling you to is the gospel cause. I don't know where He wants you. I don't pretend to know if He wants you here or there. But I can tell you this, you don't know where He wants you if you're not even willing to go listen. This obligates you to nothing but going for a weekend and hearing and talking to those being trained and seeing if it might be my call. So I challenge you. It's not just for college students, by the way. Most of the trainees right now, the 26 that are being trained, are families. Not college students. I have these. That's one application of today's sermon. A second application of today's sermon is you can very well pray over it and God may make it plain that this is not your call. But I can promise you He has called the rest of us to send them and to live gospel lives that die every day right here. So the second application is may Grace Fellowship in 2014 more than ever be a congregation of folks, an ecclesia of people, a house being built up joined rightly together by the Holy Spirit. Paul says the mortar that holds the church together is the Holy Spirit. And that mortar in the hands of the Spirit is the blood of the saints. Every brick is covered in it. My point is, all of us are called to die. In our jobs, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our community. You may never go to a foreign mission field, but you can send others and you can die every day right here. That His name is named. And He is glorified and made magnificence in our presence. Those are only two applications I have for Christians. For lost people, I know you're thinking, this is radical. I thought I might be interested in this church and I might be interested in coming to this so-called gospel or whatever, but now I know I'm not. That's okay. It's okay that that's what you feel. It's okay that you feel that. 
just to be frank, if you're longing to die and go to hell. But it's not okay. It's not okay if your desire is to live forever. The word of life is Jesus Christ. He died so you can live. I'm calling you, lost man, woman, child, come to him. Come. Be radical. Give it all up. Die to yourself and take up his cross by the power of his spirit that he might live and you might die every day. Nick Ripkin, when he was in Somaliland, ending his time, near the end of his time, <clears throat> there were about 40 Christians estimated in the entire country. Mogadishu, the capital city, there were no, at one point, no known Christians. The Muslims had wiped them out. It's a long story, but I'll tell you this. He, he got a hit list. All his Somali workers that were helping him in the aid, just feeding poor people, they were all on this hit list by this Muslim group in Mogadishu because they were consorting with infidels and they were suspected of converting to Christianity and none of them were Christians. They were all Muslims. Nick Ripkin, the missionary, got in a car drove to the compound of this terrorist leader, walked through the front gate into his office and looked him in the eye and said, take these people off this list. The guy said, why? Because they're Muslims. They're not Christians. They simply help us feed your people that are starving to death. They bow five times a day towards Mecca. They're not Christians. Do not kill them. He said, okay, we'll take them off the list. As he turned to leave, he turned back and said, Why would you kill people you suspect for converting? Why would you kill your own people? Why not kill me? Why not kill the Westerners? This is what he said. The terrorists laughed and said, Because we learned a long time ago, if you kill the Westerner, it's the blood of a martyr, and thousands will take his place. But if you kill his converts, the Westerners will pack up and go home. He was shocked. He went back to his office. He got a message that these four Somalis wanted to have the Lord's Supper. Six years of service and finally four people wanted to have the Lord's Supper. So they all came from different directions. They met in this little bombed out building and they had the Lord's Supper. In the cover of night, they ate the Lord's Supper. They prayed, they sang, they encouraged one another. They went home a week later. One of his associates burst through the door. And said, we, we've lost them. He said, what do you mean? He said, those four people were murdered this morning. For taking the Lord's Supper. They'd been found out. They died. Ripkin said, in my heart I knew. What the man said was my test. Would I leave in the face of persecution? What I'm telling you is, this is normal in the world. It's abnormal to us, but it is normal in the world. So let us pray for them. Let us go to them. Let us give that others might go. And let us die every day 
to join them in their suffering. So that they no longer look at us and say, look at those Western people. Are they even Christians? May we die every day so they look and say, those are our brothers too. May we all die that Christ might live.